everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how are you after another busy weekend of soccer watching? I'm doing pretty well, Joe. It's, I don't know about you, but I guess it's probably different in Arizona, but it's weirding me out that it's starting to feel like fall because <laughs> I don't feel like we had summer because it's usually just so soccer focused, but now everything is just like scrunched into such a short window that um, it feels a little strange, but I'm good. I'm enjoying the amount of soccer we are getting to intake. I'm going to give you a little sneak peek into what life in Arizona is like. It does not feel like fall here, as you um, suspected. Right, right. Can I just give a shout out to your parents, too? They Please. sent me a bag of coffee, and it was the nicest thing. I had some of it this morning, so I just want to say thank you to them for doing that. You're so welcome. That's on behalf of my parents, because I had nothing to do with it. But they're very kind people, and I know they've enjoyed they the are. show, like a lot of our listeners have, and we're thankful for all of them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is fueled by the Lowry's today. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect. So today we've got a player analysis, a new incoming transfer into Major League Soccer to go over a game that we're going to dig deep into talking about maybe the structural issues of one team and whether another incoming transfer, hint, hint, Higuain, is going to fix their problems or not. Then we're going to go a little bit more, a little bit more rapid fire, or at least as much as we're able to do rapid fire. We're not, we're not great at doing that, Jordan. We, uh, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> we're not very good at going quickly, but we'll go over a number of different teams that we either haven't talked about in a while or haven't had the chance to talk about over the last few weeks. So we'll touch on those teams and go into specific tactical detail on some of those things. But before any of that, next week, Jordan, next week, we're doing our listener question special. So we're going to have listeners submit questions, if you would, on Twitter, at MLS Assist Pod. And ideally, the earlier you can send those in, the better, because we want to get into those questions and have a chance to watch for them this weekend. Yeah, let us know. I think this we're excited about this. We've done this before, and we've had some really interesting questions from you guys, the viewers. So, viewers? Listeners. Listeners. That's probably better. <laughs> Listeners works better. It, right when it came out of my mouth, it didn't sound Jordan, right. Jordan, we can tell you work for TV. Yeah. So the listeners, we want to know what you guys think, because we often see your conversations on Twitter and what you guys are watching or thinking about. So give us some specific questions about either your team or a team that you're curious about, or maybe a team we haven't given enough enough love to, because we know there's a lot of teams in MLS and we know we haven't given them all equal love. We're trying but let us know. We're excited for this show. Perfect. So that'll be next week, and we'll we'll do another reminder at the end of the show, assuming that we remember. But before we get to that point, we've got a long list of soccer things to talk about, and that starts with Nashville getting a new designated player, striker Yonder Cadiz, on loan from Benfica, 25 years old, Venezuelan striker, was playing in France last year. Now he's in Nashville. Jordan, Nashville have a number nine. I mean, they have some already, but now they have another one. Well, now they have, it seems like they've been, that that's been the thing that they feel like is their missing link. And I'm curious because I don't know a lot about Cadiz and I want to know more. Can you give me some insight to who he is as a player? I would love that. I think you're very much not alone in your lack of knowledge about Cadiz, Jordan. So I think this will be helpful for Nashville fans and for fans of other Major League Soccer teams who are going to be facing Cadiz this season. And you're right. This is a position that Nashville have been looking to fill for about nine months now. I talked to Gary Smith back in December, 
And he told me that one of the spots they were looking to add a player was up top at the number nine spot. It only took them nine months to get Cadiz here on loan, but they got him. He has an option to buy for Nashville. So then the question is, as you actually asked me, what does he bring to the table? He's right-footed. Yeah. This is going to be a, a brief scouting report of, of his game. Cadiz is right-footed. He's six foot three. It's pretty tall. Mm. He's got really long legs. And that's the first thing that I noticed about him when I watch his game is he kind of lopes along on the field. He likes to get out in transition. And this, this should sound familiar for Nashville fans. He likes to get out in transition and kind of lope along. He's got those long legs for his gait. And he gets out. He can beat a player just because of his, his length and his ability to run. So he'll get are out. you talking Don Baji or who are we talking here? <laughs> it does sound a little familiar, right? It's, right? it's his ability to get out in transition. And then the other big area for him is in the box. Again, tall. He's an aerial threat. And that had me thinking dealing with Cadiz and Walker Zimmerman on corner kicks is going to be mm. tough for opposing defenses. So that's another area where teams are going to have to pay special attention to him is in the box on free kicks, on set pieces, on corner kicks. Those moments are going to be key for opposing defenses overall from what I've seen. He doesn't look like the kind of guy who's going to dominate MLS and score 25 goals in a season, although coming in midseason, that was never going to happen this year anyway. But he does seem like a solid fit for how Gary Smith wants his team to play back a little bit defensively, win the ball, play forward quickly, have Cadiz either get out and run with the ball or run off the ball, break in behind the back line or get the ball right in front of a center back turn and get off a shot with his right foot. Whenever anybody says it's not going to happen in 2020, I just, I scuff at it now. I'm like, (laughs) I mean, who knows? Maybe he could do it (laughs) because this has been the weirdest year in general. But one of the things that you mentioned is the transition moments for Nashville. I feel like they do need someone at times in the game, though, to be that connecting piece between their top line and their midfield line. Does he have that hold up ability or are we kind of waiting to see if that's part of his game as well? He does have that ability. I wouldn't say it's his primary skill, but his uh-huh. his skill set does include getting in front of stepping in front of a center back or dropping a little bit deeper, playing with his back to goal, then laying the ball off and spinning off. Maybe if the center mm. back follows him, you can spin off that defender and try to exploit that space in behind. So if Mokhtar... Okay. If, if Mokhtar and him are connecting in those spaces, that can be a valuable piece of Nashville's attack and give them a little bit more solidity as they try to transition effectively from defense to attack. And Nashville plays Columbus this weekend. Is he available? I That part, I'm not sure. There may be a quarantine left. Um, right. I think all of the visa things are settled at this point, but I am not the, the best yeah, primary better, source for that. I, I should be. Since- <laughs> I will be playing against Nashville. My team will be playing against Nashville this weekend. I'll do my research, but I'm excited. Thanks for that little scouting report. It's going to help me. Absolutely. And, and prepare the, as well. The timing of this transfer, I just think is funny because earlier in this week when I was preparing and watching film, Nashville had been struggling in the attack. They'd only scored three goals up until this weekend since MLS is still back started. <laughs> right. And then the floodgates <laughs> opened because Atlanta United stopped attacking and defending against Nashville and then Nashville score four. And so it's just the timing is ridiculous, as is everything right. else about this season. Or it, I feel like it could also make things even more interesting for Nashville because now you have the belief that you can score. 
and that multiple players can score. And you bring in a goal scorer who has all those characteristics that you just described. I think it's going to allow them to relieve a little bit of that pressure that maybe he would have been holding coming in as that big star player. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what Cadiz looks like for Nashville. Jordan, on to our game. This is the game that we both sunk our teeth into this weekend. Orlando City's 2-1 win over Inter Miami. I desperately want to talk about the build-up to the first goal, but I, I want to give you a chance to talk about anything else before that point midway through the first half where we saw a ridiculous piece of skill from Nani. I think we can talk about just the way Orlando sets up. I think that this is going to be a really fun rivalry through the years. There's, especially in the second half, there was an energy about it that makes you feel like there's a lot of meaning behind it. But until we get into the game a little bit, I, I think we should start with what you want to talk about, Joe, because I liked this play too. And it is a reason why you get players like this and bring them to your team. They're game changers and they're ridiculous on the ball. Well, and and so it's Nani getting on the ball on the left side of the field and he's going 1v1 versus Figal, who's playing right back for into Miami in, in a 4-2-3-1 in that first half for Diego Alonso. And, and Nani gets the ball on that left side and he's isolated. And this is part of how Orlando City want mm-hmm. to play. We talked about it all throughout the MLS's back tournament, getting Nani in space on that far side. He tries to drive by Figal first, then he sort of stops. He stops and spins around, and Figal also stops. In that moment, Figal lets his guard down. Nani uses that split second to nutmeg Figal, and he, he does. And then Figal just pushes him over and fouls him to save face. It's it's a beautiful skill, but I also love this play, not just for the nutmeg, but also because of how it illustrates how Orlando City want to attack and how Oscar Pereja mm-hmm. set this team up to attack. And all of those pieces come together on this play. Well, that's the big takeaway I had, especially from that first half for Orlando City playing against that 4-2-3-1. They really were finding a lot of success through... I would say they're two crucial outside players and it's Nani on the left and it's Huan on the right. And they definitely have this modified 4-2-3-1, right? That looks like um, it can be tilted to one side or the other, but they let those two players have a lot of freedom because they're really good in the channels. One of the things I noticed and re- the reasons why Orlando's setup works for them when they were playing in that first half is because of the isolation you were talking about with Nani players have then the freedom to move off the ball, knowing that Nani where Nani likes to pick up the ball. So one of the things that is, is key to me. And when you're referencing Kuan on the other side is Mueller actually tucks pretty far inside. Were you noticing that? Oh yeah. So he's almost an additional central player and he can play off DK. He, um, that positioning that he had actually was integral in their later goal in the game. But I really like this from Mueller and sometimes he'll go all the way to the left side. And it's like they are so tilted with numbers on the left side to create smaller passes, but it's all with, you can tell it all is orchestrated by Nani. Absolutely. He does. And I think we've talked about this before, actually. He does set the positioning for at least the left back on his side, mm-hmm. but also yeah. a lot of the other players in the attack. 
he can have Mueller, he can have Chris Mueller come over and combine a little bit, or at least see him in that central space. Pereira as well can come over and do some dangerous things on that left side or in that left half yes. space with Nani setting that positioning for the players around him. And on this play, it's Nani who does create that opportunity for the free kick from Pereira after Figal fouls Nani after the nutmeg. Pereira takes the free kick and sends it into the box. It glances off Andres Reyes for an own goal to make it 1-0 Orlando. I I don't think Orlando's possession structure has been functioning at as high of a level as we saw in Orlando in the MLS's back tournament, but they can still do dangerous things with the ball and create chances out of that possession structure. And we see that on this goal. Yeah, I really, uh, the ball, the ball on the goal was ridiculous. It is such a good ball. It is so hard to defend, hence why Reyes puts it in the back of the net. When you're running at pace with the ball dipping in behind your line, it's exactly what you want as one of those attacking players in the box and what you don't want as a defender. So you've got to credit Pereira for that ball in. But I do think that I just said Nani orchestrates it, but we can't not give credit to Pereira, too. He is... So in tune with where the right run is and where the positioning of the players around him are. So then he can find the space that sometimes he just drags players out of the space to then create. So you mentioned this was a 1v1 isolation with Nani on the left side. Well, a few minutes later... Nani gets isolated on the left side. There's a huge space in beyond the outside back and Figal. And Pereira notices behind him is DK and Mueller, who are about eight yards apart from each other, but central, really tight to the top of the 18. And so Pereira runs from inside out into that left channel, pulling a defender with him so then Nani can serve the ball inside and create a a little combination play between DK and Mueller. And and those are the things that Pereira does so well. So you can't, I can't say it's all Nani. There's a really good balance to this squad. That's a good point. And and we both love watching Mauricio Pereira. So that's not a problem to give him some credit as well. Right. (laughs) Heading into halftime into Miami are down one to nothing. Diego Alonso changes things. He changes from the 4-2-3-1 to a little bit more of a 3-5-2. And that puts Juan Agudelo and Robbie Robinson up top and moves Figal from right back to left center back. Was it a 3-5-2 or was it a 3-4-3? And this is why I say it. The changes that you mentioned at halftime, one of the things was they brought in Breck Shea and they brought in Dylan Nealis. And so that three back was there. It was evident, right? We knew it was a three back. But I think the way those two players played and their positioning then created a a little bit of a diamond with Matuidi as the lone holding midfielder. And in front of him was Morgan, who could float a little bit. But then Pizarro and Agudelo were flanking Carranza for most of the half. And uh, Pizarro could drop a little bit and almost be like, I don't want to call it a false night. I don't really know what to call it. But the three up top were super narrow. So maybe it was a a 3-4-2-1. I don't know. It, It looked more... Like, more numbers centrally, which I think was really key for the way that Miami played in the second half. I I think it's key, but I'm also not sure that that was where my focus was watching this. I think it's helpful to have that structural analysis, but at least where my eyes were drawn, and I'm going to get laughed at here, is I I think the back three was the most important part of this. Because... It gave their center backs, who are probably some of their best creative players and their biggest offensive contributors, 
It gave their back three more opportunities and better angles to break lines and get the ball into the feet of the attackers. And yes, at that mm-hmm. point, then the structure of the attack is important. But I noticed more often in the first, in the second half, the, the early stages of the second half, the center backs, Figal, Reyes, LGP, starting to do that more, starting to get on the ball and break lines. And I actually thought, Jordan, the midfield structure is what let Inter-Miami down on Orlando City's second goal a little bit later in the second half. I would agree with you, but I think the reason on attack, so that was defensive. Those are defensive responsibilities. And maybe they don't play like that all the time. And so they don't know exactly how to, because it was off of a turnover Mm -hmm. and a lot of pressure by Mueller who created a, a, a turnover there. So maybe Miami doesn't quite know, okay, who presses the ball, who drops in if somebody gets beat and, and those second and third things that you have to know and, and be able to make that decision in a split second when the ball does get turned over. But I would argue that the more numbers and especially those two players up top in uh, Pizarro and Agadello allowed the three center backs to have more options to break the seams, right? Because they were they were p- playing a lot of long balls into the feet of the forwards or those front three. And I think that really helped Miami create things and pull and draw numbers from Orlando centrally. So then they could isolate Breck Shea on the wing. No, that's a good point. And I, I'm curious, do we both agree that the three at the back shape, this 3-4-2-1 improved over the first half? The 4-2-3-1 was not nearly as effective as that three back. I thought it was the best decision. I thought it was a really smart decision. Okay, yeah, I think that change from Diego Alonso was very formative for the second half. It wasn't enough to get Miami the win, but they do get a goal. It's in the aftermath of a corner kick in the 65th minute. The corner kick's on one side, the ball works its way over to the far side. Piazzato plays it into Brecce, who heads it past Pedro Gaese to tie it at 1-1. But then it's four minutes later. Yeah, the change is effective, but four minutes later, Orlando City get that goal. Miami's midfield is in disarray, and I actually think this... This error starts with Figal as a left-sided center back. He tries to play the ball low and hard into Bizarro in a relatively unmanned midfield area at that time. But Sebastian Mendes steps in, wins it. Miami at this point have almost no midfield structure. And Orlando City weave their way past Matuidi and get the ball into Pereira for the finish. So it, it's poor from Miami in this moment. And it's an unnecessarily aggressive pass from Figal. But still, I think you have to almost set that moment aside and say, we found a potentially good formation option for the future that gives our, our best players a chance to make plays. And you have to take this, this goal as a hit along the way. Mm-hmm. I, well, when you talk through that, the, you, you talked specifically about Matuidi getting beat centrally. And maybe that's one of the downfalls of the switch in formation is that it was just Matuidi at that lone holding midfield position, which is what I noticed. And that could not have been what was actually really happening. But if you go into a three back and you just put two holding midfielders in front of them, kind of like what we, we've seen from Atlanta in previous years, and it does look more like a, uh, three, four, two, one, maybe. And with two holding midfielders, maybe it's more difficult for Orlando to break down, cent- uh, to break Miami down centrally. But I agree. I think that the, it, I, I think it was a mistake by Miami, but really, uh, Mendez is a player for Orlando who does a lot of good work. And defensively, one of the things I noticed from him and, and tell me if he's if I'm wrong on this. I actually notice it from Williamson in Portland too. Is they are so good at tempting the attackers 
to play into a space that then they go and pick that ball off. Mm-hmm. I've noticed they're the really, same thing. Yeah. They're really good at it. It's one of my favorite things to watch those two players do. They're like, oh, yeah, go ahead, play it here. And then they jump the passing lane. And, and that's one of the things I think Pizarro ends up getting a touch on this before Mendez tackles him. But he's right there, his anticipation. And he almost baits players into doing it. I think it was really good defensive work by Orlando City to create the turnover. Orlando City create that turnover. They score the goal from Mauricio Pereira, go up 2-1, to one, and ultimately get three points from this game. Overall, actually, I'm feeling more positive about Inter-Miami than I thought I would after this conversation. Mm-hmm. Maybe it is that tactical change from Diego Alonso that could pay real dividends. I mean, to be fair, we've seen them play out of a three-back before, and that's not a new thing for Miami. But just the positive shift that it had in this game, I think it, it, that means that the formation bears repeating, maybe with Victor Ulloa, alongside Matuidi as a double pivot, then you can play Pizarro as one of those really narrow wingers next to mm-hmm. Carranza or eventually Gonzalo Higuain as that number nine. Oh, did you just drop that in there? Like it was no big deal. I mean, I, I don't know that it's happening, but it, it seems like it's happening, right? It's happening. He's, <laughs> he was at the airport. There's pictures of him at Miami's airport yeah. with like a, re- I don't know, a fan, a reporter. I don't I think know it was, it was the owner, but... actually. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really was focusing on the other person in the photo, clearly. (laughs) Uh, Oh my gosh, that is so funny that I just said that. Um, Apologies. Uh, But I think that there are things structurally for Miami that, and I do think this three back will work. There are different players in that three back, right? It doesn't work with Roman Torres. It just doesn't. And that's what we saw at the beginning of the year. And that's where Miami really struggled. I think it was against DC United where it was like, well, they can't play like this. But this is a much better Orlando City team against, I think if Miami plays that way for 90 minutes, this game, I don't know, maybe it's not two to one because there were some breakdowns centrally in the midfield that need to be worked out. But I think Miami can take this second 45 minutes and say, okay, here's where we broke down. Let's go over this film and get better. I'm with you 100%. I think Iguain will help elevate the attack. They'll have to get in the film room and get more Mm -hmm. comfortable with the the midfield shape and how those players are going to transition when they lose the ball. And ideally, they won't lose the ball in that kind of area again. The center backs also, at times, as much as I love it, probably need to rein it in in terms of their passing selection. But that's Inter-Miami, Orlando City. Jordan, are you ready for our semi-rapid fire tactical takeaways from teams across the league? Yeah, so it was such good alliteration. Yeah, I almost stumbled on it. Tactical I can't believe I made it takeaways from teams across the... That doesn't really work. Yeah, no, no more. There's no more T's left in there. <laughs> um, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I'll go first. Okay, who do you got for us? All right, Joe, I'm going to go up to Canada. Let's I want to talk it. about Montreal, which will be good. We haven't given them enough love. And I think Thierry Henry has been calling me nonstop and being like, Jordan, come on. <laughs> Yeah, oh, wait, definitely. Was that, was that a dream? Was that a dream? It might have been. Uh, so one of the things that I think is interesting about Montreal, we've seen them play in a different, few different formations. They play in a 4-2-3-1 in this game. But what I've noticed from the beginning of the season till now is when they attack, it seems to be that they're doing so at a, one, at a good pace, but two, it allows players to then join the attack and a little bit less of a um all I could think of is balls to the walls mm-hmm. but like a fast like sprinting forward trying to counter kind of way it it's the opposite of that so the the midfield really 
creates that pace. It's Piet Winyama and Maciel who can switch the point of attack quickly and either uh, bring in a Quanquo breaking the back line or really a lot of Aquanco's movement works off of tight air. And sometimes tight air will pop off the back line and receive the ball in between the defensive line and the midfield line as a true number 10, right? And try to play in that either zone 14 or around the center of the field. But tight air also is really smart in knowing when he can get out of that central space to open up the space for other players. If you want to go back, the 39th minute is a really good example of the way that Montreal moves the ball through their midfield and Tidare's movement is coming off the back line to occupy that space centrally. But I want to talk about the the goal for Piet. Piet scored a goal. Woo, good for him. The thing that I noticed here is instead of that popping off the back line, Tidare notices as... Montreal is building up and they're switching the point of attack through Maciel and then Aquanquo, who is wide in the channel. Tidare notices that he can leave the space centrally. And instead of Aquanquo going one on one, his movement centrally into that outside space in the channel from center to left, which what we just talked about with Pereira, right? He does this sometimes too. Mm-hmm. That movement allows Aquanquo to dribble centrally shift the defense, and then thread tight air in. What happens here is now tight air is in a position where he can still be the playmaker and still create, but now there's more players who are crashing the box. Kyoto is the first player in. He drags players to the front post, but then his movement here is key. He pulls away back to the back post, and Piet comes into the near six, and tight air has an easy pass to Piet, who scores. So I think that one of the things I really like about Montreal in this game going forward, and it was one of the best games I've seen when Yama play, is they were comfortable on the ball to be able to make those types of movements and makes those types of decisions. What I want to see now is under a little bit more pressure, can Montreal make those same decisions? Because I don't think Vancouver high pressed those two midfielders, those two holding midfielders enough to make it make it a real test to say like, okay, this is they are comfortable in these situations. Okay, Jordan, I've got questions. Okay. So I want to have a better understanding of their midfield structure, or at least where mm-hmm. the players begin on paper, because I did not get a chance to watch this game. Montreal's 4-2 win over the Vancouver Whitecaps. At least I know the scoreline. But for the midfield structure, where are these players playing? Where where are Wanyama, Maciel, Piet, and Tyder? Because that's four central midfielders, right? Essentially. But I know not all of them are playing in that number six, number eight role, because there's only two spots in the double pivot. Right. I would say it's interesting because... Piet will drop back as and look like almost an additional six. So it'll be almost uh, a V, like a really flat V with Wenyama, Maciel and Piet Mm -hmm. next to each other uh, and not that far apart from each other. And I think this is why they're when they change the point of attack, it can happen quickly because they have those three players who will play rather deep. It allows in the outside backs to get a little bit higher knowing that they have the cover defensively from those three central players. So it'll oftentimes look like then Wanyama at the base, Maciel and Piet flanking him, and then Tidare almost as a number 10 in those moments? Yes, as a number 10, for sure. And Aquanquo stretches a little bit wide. So then there's two players on the left. It is a little bit more lopsided to the left. 
because mm-hmm. Aquanco is, is good in the channel. And so it is, it's a little lopsided, but that's, that's the structure that I have seen. And then it allows Piet to play in between the lines of the defense, right? And sometimes, a lot of the times, he finds himself in, his finds himself in front of that, those defensive midfield players for the other team, but has the ability to combine to get in between the defensive and the midfield line. The Montreal impact under Thierry Henry are a puzzle, right? Yeah, they really are. And that's part of what I love. And and I love, Jordan, how you've brought out some of the things that they're good at. Getting out in transition a little bit and controlling possession even in those transition moments and mm-hmm. not looking helter-skelter with how they attack. I love that. And I also like the challenge of trying to figure out how Henri has these guys playing and where he wants them in any given moment because it is very flexible. I often Mm -hmm. notice that when watching Montreal. It's like, okay, in one moment it looks like they're playing this shape and then the next moment they're playing this shape. But the principles of play that surround the formation are remaining consistent under Henri and I appreciate that and I like trying to figure out what he's doing. And really, one more thing real quickly. It does sometimes look like a three-back because they'll shift centrally. Binks will be the center player, Retalia on the almost like a left center back, and Camacho as a right center back. Brogyard will be almost a right side wing back, and Aquanco will be that player on the other side. So then they're playing almost in a three... Five two with Tidera as a false nine. It's you know it's it is it's really flexible, so it's interesting. We'll keep trying to find the puzzle pieces. We have to start with the edge. You know, you always have to start with the edge. That's right. I love the puzzle reference, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, you can. We can tell that you're a you're a big puzzler. I'm really not, but yeah, puzzles everybody are awful. knows that rule. Puzzles are awful, and yeah, that's <laughs> the one thing that I do know about puzzles. On to my first analysis here and this is again we've completely failed at the whole rapid fire thing but that's life you know that's life jordan that's not you that's just the way it goes take tactics and try to just put them in a nutshell it just doesn't work it's very challenging that's why being video analysts for a team is is really really hard and that's why we're not that but right (laughs) nycfc that's where i'm headed here you talked about the tactical flexibility under thierry Henry. nycfc are are not really like that anymore under Ronnie Dyla. They were under Dome Torrent. They were probably the most tactically flexible team in the league. And now under Ronnie Dyla, yes, they've won four of their last five games, I believe. They win this week 2-1 to one against FC Cincinnati. But the big thing for me in this game is Maxi Morales goes down with an injury. He was out earlier in the season, regained fitness, started to transform NYCFC's attack, and then he goes back down again. And I don't know the severity of this injury yet. Hopefully it's nothing serious for his sake. But at this point, that leaves NYCFC with a giant hole in the middle of their attacking midfield. And that's mm-hmm. that's a big issue. They mm-hmm. lack, generally right now, they lack creativity in their attack. It's Alexander Ring out on the left wing. It's Jesus Medina sometimes on the right, sometimes tucking inside centrally. And it's Eber. Those are like the, the only opportunities when they get the ball high up the field to create something. Essentially what that means is that when Maxi Morales is out, It's Keaton Parks, whose job it is to create from deeper in central midfield. And his positioning is often much lower in midfield because James Sands drops between the center backs. All of these things come together to show, again, the giant hole in the middle of attacking midfield, which speaks to NYCFC's difficult roster construction and the lack of quality attacking players they have. It speaks to whatever the issue that Ronnie Dyla has with Mitritza, because he would bring something in the attack from that left wing. And it speaks to really strange positioning with Ring out on the left side. Maybe if you play him more centrally, he can have better luck combining and striding forward and creating chances. But right now, and at the end of that game against Cincinnati, none of those things were happening. And I don't know where NYCFC go from here, to be quite honest with you. Defensively, 
they the way they're set up structurally too if there's a breakdown and how they are attacking and that being who who that 10 is who maxi morales or whatever player that is then defensively i don't know it just shocked me does it then impact how they are defensively i don't know and i don't know i honestly don't know what happens with with nycfc from this point it's not the end of the world and maxi morales right. will probably be back later on in the season or at least it seems like that's a possibility but I did want to get at NYCFC's offensive problems because defensively, they've been great. James Sands has been fantastic at the base of midfield, stopping counterattacks. I mean, Jordan, you saw that when NYCFC played the crew a few weeks mm-hmm. back. James Sands mm-hmm. is a rock in the back line, and he's even starting to develop his passing a little bit and starting to play more aggressive, low, direct passes to teammates in the attack. And that's a great development for New York City. But when right. they get the ball higher up the field, I just am wondering where the creation is going to come from. Unless we see some sort of structural change and maybe it looks like more of a of a pep 4-3-3 with two eights, there are issues here for NYCFC. Yeah. And they've been getting results, but I wanted to bring some attention to to that. And because I'm curious to see how they're going to respond and what things Ronnie Dalla is going to change going forward. Yeah, that's interesting. Back to me? Back to you. Okay, do you want Sporting Kansas City without a real number nine or do you want LAFC Portland info? Oh, boy. You put me in a real pickle here. I think LAFC Portland is where I want to go. Okay. I think there was a real dichotomy in this game of how bad LAFC has been defensively, but how good they still can be in attack. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And I say that because, and not to take any credit away from the Portland Timbers and their goal, because... Oh my goodness. If you had to talk about what a team goal looks like, every single player on the field touched the ball, except for Jeremy Abobasi, but his movement on that goal was crucial in order for the goal to be scored. Jordan, I've got a question about that. Can you set picks in soccer? That's what I'm wondering. Can you can you do what Jeremy Abobasi did, or is that up to the referee's discretion? Because Abobasi essentially sets a basketball screen on Eddie Segura, and there's no way Segura hits him hard enough to fall the way he, that he did. I think Segura was looking to draw some sort of weird <laughs> off-ball right. foul that we would see called in a basketball game. But is yeah. that is that a can you do that? There's supposed to be an obstruction rule, but it's never called. Okay, and I think that as long as you are smart about how you're setting a pick and don't make it look obvious. Then, then you're fine. Most, most of the time, you're all right. It, it happens, and it's part of the game that is really annoying if you're the player that gets picked. But um, yeah, winning the space sometimes is the best option. So we'll just call it that, winning the space. His feet were set. He was ready. He had his, his ground, and Eddie Segura ran into him. <laughs> so I think Abobas yeah. is clear. Right. Uh, once you watch that goal and see how beautiful Portland played it, uh, from their goalkeeper all the way to Williamson's patience in the box to score the goal. I want you to then go and watch the goal from the other point of view and see how LAFC, and we've talked about them, how once their first line of pressure gets beat, how they're not very good at recovering and they're not very good at anticipating what's next. And it seems to me like Every time Portland, and this might be credit to Portland, but LAFC just looks like they're 
a second too slow, a second too slow. Don't get back and recover. Janela doesn't get back into the space. He's almost just jogging back instead of sprinting back and occupying the space centrally to deny the switch of the point in the attacking third for Portland. And he can't then get the, the ball with a sliding tackle. It seems to me like it is just like not decisive enough in saying, okay, we're going to get back and recover. And I don't care if um, this is a hundred yard sprint, or I don't care if there's no one in this space. I know this space is crucial. So there has to be a switch there for LAFC. Yeah, there. I mean, I tweeted this during the game last night as it was happening. This is Sunday night. I tweeted out that LAFC's inability to defend deep in their half is an issue. It's a big issue, mm-hmm. and it's been an issue, and we've talked about it before, and we will continue to talk about it until it's not there anymore. And so my question to you then, Jordan, is how do they fix that? Is that possible? Is that something that is mental? Is it a way with how they're marking? What What are your – if you were tasked, if you were Bob Bradley and somehow you were just appointed – actually, congratulations, Jordan. You've just been appointed manager of Los Angeles Football Club. How are you going I, to get um, them? Kindly declined. Okay, perfect. That's, <laughs> Just yeah, that might be that might be the right call. How do you get this the squad to defend better in those moments deep in their half? For me, when I'm watching LAFC, when I'm watching Atlanta right now, you really get a picture of what confidence does to a team and lack thereof. Right now, LAFC does not look confident. So everything they do looks like, not everything, I shouldn't say that. A lot of the things that they do look like they're second guessing themselves when before it wasn't, they were honestly feeling the game. And you could, when you're confident and you're feeling the game, you make the decision that feels right in that moment. And then that's the decision, right? And it typically is the right one. Right now, it looks to me like LAFC is not confident. And so they're second guessing themselves. So what I would tell the players is every single player on that team can add more defensively, I think. Or am I wrong? No, you're absolutely that? right. So I would ask them all to evaluate what they could do better and focus more on their on what they are giving defensively to this team. Because one of the things that we've noticed from LAFC over the years is their defensive commitment to a pressing system allows them to then win the ball and be in the right positions because of their commitment to the defense, right? And that seems when it lacks and when that confidence of like, hey, the person next to me is going to do their job and I'm going to do my job and then the other person is going to do their job. When they don't have that confidence in themselves or the people around them, you can see how easily it can break down. I went back through this week and watched film on LAFC and everything that you just said was evident in watching them and in watching some of their losses. Everyone on the field almost was a step late in their press, which then has problems all the way down the field because then you don't win the ball high up the field, which is what LAFC want to do. Then you're scrambling and then you're a step late to win the ball deeper. Then maybe you're a step late to win the ball in the box. And then when the ball is in the box, you're at least potentially going to get scored on. So yeah, evaluating where each of these players stands and how they can improve individually and win those moments. It doesn't even have to be winning the ball, but winning that that battle of stepping to the ball. Even that can be a mental hurdle and doing that can improve this team as a collective. Or how about if you see one person step late and get beat, and then you see another person step late and get beat? Somebody says, let's drop back (laughs) and just have everyone get behind the ball and stop the chasing. 
Because it turns it turns from pressing into chasing. That's they're genius. just chasing the ball. Yeah. So somebody needs to say, okay, I'm going to lead in these moments. And I'm going to say, this isn't good enough. We can get beat. Like, there are times where the other team is just going to break down a good press. And that's going to happen. But if you don't have a player, Segura, Yakovic, who say, no, we're not going to keep chasing. Drop. Get back. And they have a line where they are all trying to retreat and get back to. And then make those spaces and those channels smaller because they're just clogging it up. There's never that moment for me where LAFC just says, okay, we're getting beat. Let's retreat. I want to turn the tables here on this discussion okay. and look at the other half of this game and look at the Portland Timbers and not necessarily even a specific from this game, but it's Sebastian Blanco who's out for the rest Ugh. of the season after a torn ACL just over a week ago, No, which is, which is horrible, right? That's very challenging. And Jordan, you know that better than almost anyone. That changes how the Portland Timbers can attack structurally. Number one, it takes away that creative presence in the middle of the field, sometimes drifting over to the left side, that two-footed presence of Sebastian Blanco. But number two, it moves Jeremy Abobasi away from the number nine spot where he was so effective in Orlando and where he's been mostly effective in the past. And it moves him over to the wing. And that isn't to say that Abobasi can't be effective in moments from that right wing position that he played in this game, the right side of the attacking midfield in a 4-2-3-1. But it is to say that that is not ideal for the Portland Timbers. Mora played the number nine. I thought he was actually pretty good in moments against LAFC. But Abobasi not being able to exploit pockets of space and use his movement in the box as that central attacker is not, I think, what Gio Savarese would choose to have. And so mm -hmm. I'm curious to see how the Timbers are going to respond from this injury and how their attack is going to be going forward. And will it be able to gain the same effectiveness or at least a portion of the effectiveness without Blanco and with Abobasi on the wing? The other thing which leads to my second point with LAFC is when they look really good, they look really good like themselves again. But it, it also involves Jeremy Abobasi on that defensive side on the right, right side of that 442 block, right? If, if you don't know the responsibilities of this Portland Timbers team defensively, whew, you're going to get chopped right up. And the goal comes from a throw in turnover in the midfield. Uh, Portland has the ball. They throw it in. It gets turned over. And now Bobasi has to come back and, and squeeze centrally. And I think LAFC do a really good job of keeping the ball with Jakovic as they switch it from left to right. And Jakovic just holds on to the ball and tempts Portland out of what they want to do so quickly, right? Which is drop in defensively. So they're almost in this mid block. And what happens is Jakovic notices that Mark Anthony K is in a really nice space of the field. Portland hasn't quite gotten into their condensed formation and he can split the line between Mora and Valeri into this space on the field where Kay picks the ball up. What happens next is Janela is then in between Paredes and Abobasi. So he's made his run a little bit higher up on the field and Abobasi, instead of pinching in and making that channel smaller he stays too wide and then Janela can f and can receive the ball on the half turn and everything happens from there right this play happens in nine seconds from Djokovic to 
Rossi scoring the goal for LAFC because it is this is how good LAFC is when they notice a weakness on a team. They can play the ball in. Abobasi's out of position. They find Janela, who then has two options. It's BWP pushing the back line and stretching the back line. And then Rodriguez coming in front of the back line. So that dichotomy there just messes up the Portland defense. And then Rodriguez can slip the ball into a really nicely timed run by Rossi. He holds his run. So then he's meeting the ball at full speed, going towards the goal. And he he's always going to place that with his right foot, right? And this is how this is why the responsibilities is on that right side are going to be tough for Jeremy Obobese because I think a lot of that has to do with just him pinching in a little bit and denying Janela to have that space in between him and the center midfielder. There's too much space there for LAFC too to play space. into, and that's left open by Abobasi, and that's a great observation. Mm-hmm. Not only is it the offensive side of shifting Abobasi out wide that Portland are going to have to yeah. wrestle with a little bit, but it's the defensive responsibilities. And Abobasi's a, a mobile guy. I think he totally. he can improve from that spot, but you see immediately right off the bat some of the downsides of losing Blanco from the attack. And he's super intelligent. I'm not saying that he's not going to be able to pick this up. He probably will, but this is our first chance to really see him play this position. And this is how small the margins are in Major League Soccer. Yeah. It's small. And that's one of the things that if he is going to play there, that connection with him and the center midfielder has to be closer. And I tweeted out that goal when I was watching the game last night from LAFC because it was so beautiful. One of my favorite goals, one of my favorite team goals. You talked about the Timbers goal early on. And then LAFC's goal, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. sequence. Go watch it. It's It'll make you happy. It'll make you smile. And and same thing about Abobasi not even touching the ball and being a big part of it. BWP didn't touch the ball. And he was huge. He messed up that back line for Portland Timbers and really did a good job of pulling players out of the space that then Rossi then attacked. We We will never do this. We would never do this. But Jordan, I almost wonder... Could we do an entire show about one goal that we just loved from the weekend and talk about it for 45 minutes? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. And yeah, we won't do that Knowing to you guys, us. but I think we could I think we could do it cuz I I think we could even do it with this goal. But yeah. before there's any more temptation to do that or to even talk about it anymore. The last tactical talking point, tactical tidbit. These aren't really tactical tidbits, but the last thing that I want to get into on today's show is FC Dallas and two specific okay. players for Dallas that I think were important and are going to be important to the team going forward, even after this 2-1 win over the Dynamo on Saturday. All right, let's get to it. Number one, Andres Ricarte. Number 10, recent signing for FC Dallas coming into that midfield and bringing balance that I think they sorely lacked for large stretches of the season before this point. So we talked before about Jesus Ferreira playing as that number 10 and how there was room for improvement there and how he saw space and how he used space and how he played out of space in that central area. Ricarte is much more comfortable in that role. They brought him in to bring a little bit more confidence in space exploitation ability. That's a really long, Mm. cumbersome term Mm -hmm. that I don't think anyone's ever going to use. I like it. (laughs) He's able to get into pockets of space in and around zone 14 or drop deeper to bring some tempo to the game in Dallas's midfield. He did that over and over again against the Dynamo in that 2-1 win. He also slapped a volley from 30 yards out with his left foot to score Dallas's first goal. You know, Jordan, you know when someone just hits the ball and that's the only way to describe it is they slap it with their foot? Oh, yeah. That's what this was. Yeah. So he's got skill well, with his it left. it should be because that means it's a really short swing and it's yeah. choppy. Yeah. And t- 
when you're trying to volley a ball and you've got a, like your leg flying everywhere and you don't slap it, then the ball's probably going to go where a lot of those 30 yard volleys go, which is <laughs> whoop, up and over. And that's a good point because it's not a replicable action. That goal is not a replicable action, but it's clear that he has some skill with that left foot. He, I think Ricarte brings something very important to this Dallas team. He brings connection between Hara and the midfield, and that just was not there before. So that's that's yeah. the first thing and probably the most important thing that we saw from FC Dallas this weekend that we hadn't seen before. And that connection piece, I think, in general, what Dallas has been going through with Pomichol out with an injury, with Reggie Cannon leaving, there has to be somebody that comes in and is say, keeping the team connected, even if it's just through those things on the field, right? And that's really important when you talk about how Dallas is going to be able to function because there's been a lot of things that aren't going great. That connection piece is something that they needed, and it's nice that they could fill that. It seems like they have it. It's a small sample size so far, but yeah. I was encouraged by Dallas in attack and how comfortable they looked in possession, which is what we've come to expect from a Lucha Gonzalez team. So that was number one. The other player, and this is going to be a quick shout out, a quick, you know, something to watch, is Brian Reynolds looking really promising at right back. Cannon, obviously now off to Portugal, playing with Boa Vista. It looks like Albert Elise might be headed there as well. He, who knows? Right? Last week we talked about Piti Martinez and the reports about him moving on. And then right after I published the show, he was gone. It was <laughs> official. So maybe that means Elise will already be gone by the time you're listening to this. But Brian Reynolds at right back has stepped in for Reggie Cannon and looked good. He's still raw. But he seems to have mm-hmm. an understanding of space and timing in the attack, knowing when and where to make his runs. And he can make the runs quickly. He's got really, really good speed from the right side of the field, from that right back spot. Just something to watch for him. How does he play with the ball when he's on it? Because I think that's his biggest weakness right now is defensively. How does he defend the ball? And then when he's on the ball, what what kind of passes is he making from that right back spot? But when he's in transition or when he's dynamic in his movement, he is hard for the opposing left side of the opposing defense to stop. This guy could be a real factor for U.S. youth age groups and even going forward for FC Dallas and how he impacts that right side. Hmm. Dallas just doing a lot of things to build those right backs, it seems like. <laughs> just a factory. It's just a right back factory. In right? Frisco. FC right back. Yeah. That, I don't think that's going to catch on, but honestly, who knows? <laughs> All right, Joe, this was fun. But I think before we go, we have to say, you guys, we love telling you what we see in the game, but... What do you guys want to know? We want to see if you guys have anything that is really interesting you about your squad, about a team that maybe you're just intrigued by. Let us know. We're going to do a listener's questions. We're going to do listener questions for next week's show. So we want to hear from you guys. What a segue, Jordan. That was fantastic. I couldn't have said it any better. We're doing listener questions next week. Send us your questions on Twitter at MLS Assist Pod. Jordan, thanks for chatting with me. Always fun, always good to talk soccer, and I always enjoy it. Yep, we'll be back next week. Thank you all.